to the GBC Sermon Podcast from Gaimia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. This message from our Sunday church service is part of the resources we provide as we seek to see lives changed by Jesus. You could also listen to our Big Three podcast, a conversation that unpacks three big questions raised from sermons like this one. You can find more information about Gaimia Baptist Church as well as discipleship resources and an opportunity to join us in person or online on our website, gaimiabaptist.org.au. Normally at this uh, point in the service, we would have somebody come out and preach a sermon to us and open the Bible and expand the Word. And uh, today, Mark Rader um, will be preaching. And you may have noticed that I'm not Mark Rader, well spotted. Um, (laughs) But today, we're actually doing something a little bit different. And we haven't done this for a little while, so I thought I might explain what it is. And especially as we've got um, school holidays and kids in so that you know what's going to happen right now. Um, This is going to be a first-person narrative. Uh, Some of you have seen these before. I heard a bit of a R in the uh, in the room here for onliners. A first person narrative is where Mark comes on in character as one of the people in the story. And, and today uh, we're going to be looking at the courageous life of Esther. And you'll also be happy to know that he's not going to be coming out as Esther um, as well. <laughs> So he's actually coming out as a character called Hakath, uh, Hathak, sorry, who is uh, the go-between, one of the servants of the king. If you'd like to be reading along for context, especially for the kids who are with us, you can go to the app, the Bible app, and there's Esther chapter 4. And so this will be based on Esther chapter 4, uh, not just for the kids. If you would like to do that, you can as well. Um, so when Mark comes out, he'll come out in character and um, it'll be... God's word explained to us, but let me invite you to lean in. This is a space for imagination. This is a space to open yourself up to God's word, and um, it is a little bit different. So um, I'll come up back at the end. Thanks. There is a fine line between courage and folly, a line that is often only clear in retrospect. I've had the privilege of serving under two queens being both a chief advisor and chief of staff for them, both of whom have chosen to walk that fine line. The first, well, chose to disobey the king's command and became persona non grata, she who shall no longer be named. The second is about to disobey the king's command, and I don't yet know what her decision will lead to. She who shall no longer be named made her infamous last stand at the second royal banquet of the king's third year. You may have heard of the first banquet that year. Six months of feasting in which anyone who was anyone was invited. Princes, nobles, military leaders all gathered for 180 days of consecutive feasting, a demonstration, an over-the-top demonstration of the king's glory and power and majesty. But it's the events of the second festival that everyone remembers. This was a smaller, more exclusive, bigger deal. It was only seven days long, but it was held in the enclosed gardens of the king's royal chambers, and the king managed to find more stops to pull out. The gardens were exquisitely decorated. Marble pillars had been imported and installed for the event. Gorgeous tapestries were hung from them. 
gold and silver furnishings were placed on a newly paved mosaic pavement of semi-precious stones, marble and crystal and mother of pearl. The other stop that the king pulled out was all the corks in all the wine bottles. Because by the king's command, everyone was allowed to drink whatever they wanted, however they wanted, in a golden goblet that had made made specifically for them. No two were the same. Well, at the same time, the queen held a smaller, less raucous, more sober banquet in her own chambers for the women of the royal palace. And it was on the seventh day, the last day of this second feast, when it happened. Late in the afternoon, the seven eunuchs who served the king came to the queen's chambers with a command from the king that she was to appear before him with her royal crown on so that they might gaze on her beauty. And she refused. Never really understood why. To be fair, being gawked at by hundreds of drunken men is appealing to nobody. And I should probably squash the rumor that she was asked to appear in only her royal crown. That just isn't true. But whatever the reason, the decision that she made, believing to be one of courage, proved almost immediately to be folly. And the line between courage and folly might be fine, But the gap when you get it wrong is huge. You can imagine the king was furious. So he called a halt on the seventh day of the festival and called an emergency cabinet meeting with seven of his most highly trusted and most highly capable advisors, who unfortunately had been at the feast, which might explain the logic of their decision. It went something like this. Now that the queen has disobeyed a command of the king, all women in all 127 provinces will be empowered to do the same, and we will have chaos. So in order to cut off copycat crimes, an edict was pronounced, one of those never-to-be-repealed edicts. An edict read that every man was to be ruler of his household. You can imagine how that went over. An unintended consequence of she who shall no longer be named's decision to refuse the king. There was more. Because she had refused to attend to the king, she was forbidden from ever seeing the king, the punishment fitting the crime, She was deposed from her position, and a search was to be made for a replacement. And the search was as over the top as you might expect from the king. Hundreds of women from all over the empire were brought to the harem, subjected to a battery of beauty treatments before they spent one night with the king. After that, they went to another part of the harem and For most of them, they were never able to see the king again and could never go home. Hundreds of women, essentially widowed, again, in part due to her decision, in combination with very powerful and, dare I say it, unwise people. Well, 
It took nearly four years for this careful search to uncover a queen for the king, but when she was appointed and crowned, I was once again appointed as her chief of staff. But the memory of what happened with she who shall no longer be named remains etched in my memory. And the events of the last three days have brought it all back. Suppose, though, I need to start just a little further by telling you about Mordecai. Until very recently, I had no idea why the queen had taken a shine to this relatively unimportant Jewish official. I mean, he was literally a nobody in the king's bureaucracy, but the queen just had all day for him. I assumed it was because he was a pretty useful informant of court intrigues and politics. Uh, It had been his tip-off, actually, that had ended up uncovering an assassination attempt against the king. Uh, Big Fana and Teresh had been found guilty of that. Actually, as I mentioned, I can't remember the reward that he received. Doesn't matter. I'm sure it was spectacular. Mordecai was this constant presence for the entire five years of the queen's reign a lesser light, constantly in her orbit. The one who, to be frank, I didn't really think too much of or about. Until Haman, son of Hamadatha, was appointed as grand vizier by the king. And for reasons that are unclear to me, Mordecai decided that he would not show the grand vizier any respect. He would neither bow nor bend the knee. And while he may have thought he was acting with courage, it didn't take a genius to realize that this was never going to end well. That this was surely the path of folly. Haman was the second most powerful man in the kingdom. According to some, the power behind the throne. He was wealthy, he was influential, he was intelligent, and he was ruthless. I didn't know how this was going to end in any other way than it did. I remember thinking to myself, I hope that Mordecai is prepared for whatever happens. And so three days ago, when I heard that Mordecai had shown up outside in the outer courts, so with torn robes, wearing sackcloth with ashes in his head, wailing in mourning, I figured what had happened. Haman had obviously found out about his petty little stunt, and had had him flogged or fined or reassigned to the outer provinces or something. And as far as I was concerned, he ought to cat his lunky stars. He was still upright and breathing. What did surprise me, though, was how distressed the queen was to find out that Mordecai was in grief. She actually sent an attendant down with a set of new clothes so that he could enter into the royal chambers and have a personal audience with the queen, which I found weird. I mean, a gift of new clothes from the queen to anyone, let alone a low-ranking Jewish official, would have been a little bit strange. But the invitation to have a personal audience with her extended to a man who was obviously on the wrong side of Haman, and by extension, therefore, the king, seemed to be risking her reputation. I had no idea what it was that Mordecai had on her or what relationship they had that had led her to act this way. Well, the surprises just kept coming. About half an hour later, this poor attendant came back, bearing the clothes and the news that Mordecai had both refused the gift 
and turned down the invitation to meet the queen. I mean, read the room, man. (laughs) Do you have a death wish? But instead of being angry, she just became more distressed and sent me to find out what the problem was. I made my way through the palace complex, through the inner court, through the gate to Mordecai. I asked him what was troubling him so much the queen would really like to know. In the response, he handed me the copy of an edict published the day before by Haman and signed with the king's seal. It, uh, it explained why he was so upset. I'd been prepared to know that Haman had found out about what Mordecai had failed to do and had punished him in some sort of way. What I was not prepared for was that Haman intended to have every single Jew, man, woman, and child, in all 127 provinces of the empire, destroyed, killed, and annihilated, and all of their goods plundered. One man's act of folly had led to this. And there was more. And I'll tell you, what Mordecai lacked in social graces, he more than made up for with his ability to know what was happening. The man had ears everywhere. So he knew, for instance, that Haman had managed to get this edict authorized without ever mentioning the name of the nation that was to be destroyed. Apparently being told that uh, there's a group of people who are different, who don't obey, and you know, it doesn't really, it's not in your best interest, was enough for the king. He knew, in fact, that Haman had used some slippery language to describe what would happen to this nation, making it seem that maybe they would only be enslaved rather than destroyed. He knew that Haman had been so confident about his ability to manipulate the king that he had actually gone into the temple of his god and had the lot cast to determine the auspicious and lucky day on which to destroy the entire Jewish nation. He knew the exact amount of money, 10,000 silver talents, that Haman had offered to put into the royal treasury to cover the administrative costs of this little exercise. He knew that the king had asked no follow-up questions, had not thought twice before giving him his signet ring, and had refused the money. He even knew the kind of wine that Haman and the king sat down to drink after they had sent out the edict. A Babylonian Shiraz, if you're interested. (laughs) Mordecai gave me the copy of the edict told me to take it to the queen and to instruct her to go see the king, to plead for mercy and to beg for the life of her people. And I thought to myself, who in the world do you think you are? Instructing the queen? I kept that to myself, discretion being my watchword, and made my way back to the queen. About halfway back, I realized what I had just heard. Go to the king and plead with him for your people. The queen was Jewish. 
Nobody knew that. I hadn't known that. Haman certainly could not have known that. Uh, he, there's no way that he would have schemed to do anything to harm the queen. The king, with enough red wine, the man doesn't care about anything. But she was in terrible danger. I returned to the chambers and gave her the edict, allowed her to read it, gave her a moment to digest it, and then added, and Mordecai instructs you to go to the king and plead with him for your people. She looked at me for a long moment, sent the rest of the attendants out, and told me the truth. She was Jewish. And Mordecai was not just a low-ranking Jewish official, but was her cousin. And beyond that, he had essentially raised her when her parents died. He was her adoptive father, which explained a lot. It certainly explained her very gracious response that she sent me back with. To gently remind Mordecai that you can't just go see the king. It doesn't work that way. Everybody knows that. If you show up uninvited to the inner courts of the king, there is only one law. Death. And the only exception is if the king happens to be in a good enough mood to extend his royal scepter to the intruder. And the queen hadn't been summoned by the king for at least a month. And for the queen of all people to disobey that order would be all too reminiscent of... She who shall no longer be named. Well, if Mordecai realized his part in this whole thing, if Mordecai had any sense of conscience about the danger that she was about to take, he did not let on. In fact, personally, I found his words to be a thinly veiled threat to expose her. Adoptive father or not, my loyalty is to the queen. His response was, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will survive. For if you do not speak, deliverance and relief will arise from another place. But you and your father's household will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. This, this, was the decision he wanted her to make. To risk almost certain death now or face certain death then. Well, the queen made a very quick decision. And for the third time that day, I made my way through the palace complex to the courtyard, this time to give instructions to Mordecai. He was to gather all the Jews in the capital city and fast for three days, after which the queen would go to the king. And if she perished, she perished. That was three days ago. The queen has neither eaten nor drunk anything. None of us have. The preparations have been in full swing the stylists in, the dress selected, the jewelry chosen. And she is about to go and disobey the king's order. Ironic, really, 
that she who shall no longer be named disobeyed by not going, and the queen is now going to disobey by going, but we'll leave that to one side. It is my role to advise. There is a thin line between courage and folly. And I asked her if she was sure this was the courageous thing to do. And her answer surprised me, did not comfort me, and has stuck with me. Because she told me stories of her people taken from their sacred texts. She told me the story of Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers and taken against his will to a foreign land. And despite his hardship and slavery, nonetheless, the Lord, the God of Israel, blessed him, as was evident in the fact that he found favor in the eyes of all who saw him. And ultimately, he had been sent by the Lord to that foreign country in order to effect a great salvation for his people and for all nations. She then recounted to me her experiences of having been selected in this dragnet of beautiful women, brought to the courts, brought to the harem, where she met Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem, and how immediately she found favor in his eyes, how she was given one of the best places in the harem, how she was given access to the the best beauty treatments, how he assigned seven attendants to her. She told me other examples of winning the favor of those that she encountered and interacted with in the courts, of Haggai's excellent advice on the night that she spent with the king, and of how the king's heart had been opened to her on that evening, and how she had been named queen. She picked up the copy of the edict, drew my attention to the date that it was published, and told me, that it was the day before Jews all across the 127 provinces would celebrate a great festival of deliverance. The edict was dated the 13th day of the first month. And on the 14th day of the first month, Jews celebrated the Passover. When they remembered when the angel of death had passed over them and they had been saved. And she drew my attention to the date the edict came into effect, the 13th day of the 12th month, almost a full year away. The date that had been chosen by Haman, by Lot. And she quoted her sacred texts that the Lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord's. And she stopped speaking. It is not my place to contradict royalty. But there are times when you have to take a risk. And I said to her, don't you think that that sounds a little coincidental? You, my lady, are a beautiful woman. Beautiful women tend to win the favor of those who see them. 
You were not the only woman who was given fine quarters. Not the only woman given fine beauty treatment. Not the only woman given these attendants. The king was bound to eventually make a decision. It took him four years. Why should it have been you? And is it worth risking your life on a date? A date that's not even the date, but the day before the date? And has the Lord, some God of some small little province, has he been able to influence the casting of lots in a Persian temple? Is this really the right thing to do? And she said, who knows? I believe that the Lord my God is at work even when I cannot clearly see his hand. But I will act and live like it is true. And she had. Her plan was to go to the king's inner court and invite the king and Haman to an intimate banquet with just herself where she would be able to speak more fully and openly and freely about the events that she hoped to speak about. And she had been acting like she was going to be successful. She had planned every detail of the banquet, all the way down to the wine choices. She really knew her man. It's a fine line between courage and folly. And I don't yet know what time will tell. But I must confess that I am inspired by her willingness to see the hand of her God at work and to act accordingly. And I can only hope and pray that both time and her God will prove her right. Let's just take a beat. Sometimes with the first person narrative, it's nice to just let that wash over you. So I have some questions for you. And these are questions that you can ask over coffee or in the Zoom chat if you're online or in the chat as you're watching. Um, there's some questions you can take to the you and a few and the you and a crew, your Bible study group. And here they are. What's going on for you now? Where have you seen the faithful hand of God? in your history, in your past? Where has God proved himself faithful to you? What are you facing now that requires courage, a bit of bravery? What in your life is, is the thing that's a little bit of a hot spot? A little bit difficult. A phone call you have to make, an appointment, someone that you need to talk to, 
a step, a sacrifice, an area to serve? What is it for you that requires courage today? Finally, what's God saying to you out of this story, Esther? What is God saying to you? We hope this message has challenged and strengthened you, encouraged you to pray and rely on God and blessed you today. If you'd like to get to know some of our church community, you can listen to the We Are The Church podcast, an open conversation with real people who call GBC home as they share stories of God at work in their lives and how their lives are being changed by Jesus.